Kentucky each week to the best of my ability. And uh, I'm looking forward to this series. Uh, if you haven't noticed, I would encourage, if you didn't get one, uh, get a three-ring binder because this is going to be, tonight's notes are actually probably going to be light. I'm going to end up probably giving you more um, as we go along. Uh, and so I, for those of you that have been in a class with me before, <clears throat> I don't want you to panic by all the empty spaces. I want you to notice that at the end of every set section, I've given you the answer. So if you miss one, you can go back. Now, I always sat in a class and wondered why a teacher would do that. Here's the reason why is because whether you write it in as, as I'm teaching it or you go back and fill it in, it is the thing that I tried to pick out words and things that stood out to help understand where we were going and what we were doing, okay? And uh, so I want to uh, be teaching on eschatology for the next several weeks. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing this. I've always shied away. I've, I'm into my 35th year of ministry, and I've always shied away from teaching on the end times, um, not so much because I feared it, but I just didn't want to get into debates with people. And uh, so at the same time, the Lord convicted me a few months ago that said, no, it's time for you to, to teach on it. And so I said, well, then help me lay this all out so that I can at least make sense to myself. And uh, hopefully it'll make sense to you. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll be able to share the things of the Lord. Renee disappeared. Where'd she go? Oh, uh, we've got a couple more here. Um, and then if we run out, just let me know because we can always make more copies. Uh, so the first thing that I told the Lord was, okay, Lord, I want to be able to share this in an understandable way without people just relying on the fact that I'm teaching it. Does that make sense? Because a lot of times I think we end up believing something because we've heard it so often. Or we like the person that said it. And so we buy into it and we say that that's, that, that, that's the truth because how could he tell something wrong? I, I won't ever tell you that I'm purposely telling you a lie, but there's things that I've learned through the years that I've walked with him that I didn't know 25 years ago, 30 years ago, that God is teaching me every day. And so um, I felt very strongly, we're going to take just a few minutes, and I'm going to go very quickly on this first section here in your notes. The first, it's front and back, so it's like the first two pages, four pages total. We're going to go very quickly, because a lot of this I've addressed before, but this is the foundation of when I get into it. Uh, here in just a little bit, starting to talk about the actual eschatology. And I will try to remind you what some meanings are of some words, because I've had to remind myself. But eschatology is just the study of end times or end things. Okay? It's just a fancy term. But uh, so in your notes there, the methods of interpretation. Uh, the reason why I feel like I need to start here is because Part of the reason why there's so many different doctrines of all sorts, not just eschatological, but for salvation, Christology, soteriology, all of that stuff, all of the different doctrines that are out there, 
um, a lot of them have become distorted and outright false because of an improper interpretation technique, okay? And uh, I, I believe very strongly that if we grasp this, things begin to, to, to make sense as we go along, okay? Because there's some things that you hear preached. Now, I've been a preacher for 30 years, and I've probably preached some things that sounded really good, but were probably not really accurate to what the Scripture was tr really trying to tell us, okay? And, uh, and uh, there's some sermons that are really, really good, but they really don't. I had a Bible college teacher, I won't mention his name, but as Bible college students, we used to sit in the congregation waiting to see his facial expression as to whether or not the preacher was using the Scripture correctly or not. So to start off with, the method of interpretation, this is, first of all, primarily just across-the-board interpretation, and then we're going to address the aspect of prophecy here in just a moment. So number one there is the allegorical method, the allegorical method. And uh, it's A-L-L-E-G-O-R-I-C-A-L, -L -E allegorical. It's the long, elongated term of allegory. And uh, this was the definition of an allegor uh, allegorical method is that when you interpret a literary text, whatever that text is, um, it regards in the literal sense as just a vehicle to a secondary, more spiritual, more profound sense, okay? And so when you read that in the beginning was the word or, or in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you can look into that and, and all of a sudden you use the literal aspect, but you're trying to come up with this spiritual connotation. When it says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's exactly what it means, and that's it, okay? You, you can't read into that, but an allegorical interpretation, you can break all of those words up and try it to mean something that it may or may not mean. So there are some dangers uh, to the allegorical method of interpretation. The first one in your notes is there. It does not interpret Scripture, but is only the exposition found in the mind of the expositor, Okay, in other words, there's no rule of thumb. It's I can get up and I can be the expositor of some great truth in the Word of God, and if I have interpreted it allegorically, it can be whatever I want it to say. Okay? The second danger is the basic authority in interpretation ceases to be the Scriptures. When you interpret by an allegorical method, it is based off of the mind of the interpreter and not off of the scripture. There again, there's no rule, there's no guide, there's no, no boundaries, okay? So when it says it's a fig tree, if I want to say it's not a fig tree, I can say that, and I can just say, well, that's an allegorical picture. No, it was a fig tree, okay? Um, you are left without any means by which conclusions of an interpreter can be tested. There's no means to test what is being preached or taught or said when you interpret allegorically the scriptures, okay? I can prove to you that Jesus' name was Jesus based off of the scripture that said they named him Jesus. 
But if I make it all mystical and allegorical, I can tell you that it was something else. And I can come up with an explanation, and there's no means of measuring whether I'm right or wrong because I have interpreted it in a way that I want to interpret it. And that's the basis of my understanding. Okay, so that's the, that's the first method. Obviously, if you haven't picked up on it, I'm against that method. Uh, and the second method is the literal method or what theologians will call grammatical historical method. And the definition of this literal method simply means to give each word the same exact basic meaning it would have had in a normal, ordinary, customary usage of that day, that hour, whether it's in writing, speaking, or even thinking, okay? So um, the literal meaning of sentences, it's the reason why when you hear me preach, I go all the way back to the original Greek because I want to get as close to the original meaning of the word because that's the safest way to interpret, okay? The secondary meaning, there are secondary meanings in Scripture. We do it all the time, and you're going to hear about a lot of it as we get into the depths of eschatological uh, teaching. But they all depend, any type, parable, allegory, um, symbol, all depend on the existence of that which is already literal, Okay, so when we talk about the soil, we know it's talking about our heart because Jesus identifies that he was talking in a parable and he was using soil in reference to our, our, our heart, really, our soul, where the seed falls. Does that make sense? So it's literally talking about a farmer putting seed in, but he's talking in a parable, and so he identifies the parable. The problem is, is there are people that have interpreted in, a, in like a parable or a type or a, a sign or something of that nature without ever establishing what the literal term is. And that's when people get all way off key. The Bible becomes much easier to understand when you interpret literally. It really is. The Bible really is not very difficult to understand if you're willing to interpret it the right way. The literalistic approach, we don't rule out figures of speech, symbols, or any of that, but we understand that the nature of the sentence will demand whether or not we read it as, I know when I'm reading Psalms, I'm reading a song. And I know when I'm reading Song of Solomon, I know I'm reading colorful language of a deeper meaning, okay? So we don't get rid of parables and, and signs and types, but we place it into the right context of understanding the scripture. And, and this is, in my humble opinion and a lot of conservative theologians' opinion, the literal method is the only sane and safe way to check the imaginations of man. There are some weird doctrines out there, okay? There are some weird, weird teachings and the thing that locks and protects us from those weird teachings is the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, in your notes there, there are some advantages. Number one, it grounds interpretation in facts. It grounds it in facts. We're not making things up. When the Bible says something, if I'm going to interpret literally, it's going to say what it says. 
Okay? The problem with most of us, including myself, the problem with most of us, we try to read into what the Scripture says so that it appeases our conscience because we really don't want it to really be a true mirror of our soul because it may mean we have to change our dogma, our minds about what we've learned and heard for years and years. It exercises the control over the interpretation simply like experimenting in science does. Okay? It's the greatest success in opening the word of the Lord. It gives us, and this is in your notes, it gives us a basic authority by which all interpretation can be tested. It's the basic rule when it comes to the literal method. Uh, it delivers us both from reason and mysticism as the requisite or the requirement of interpretation. In other words, I don't have to figure out what you're thinking or what mystery you're trying to reveal. I can just go right to the scripture and let it reveal it for me. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the problem. I'm dropping down a little bit to the history of interpretation. Do you know that the interpreting of scripture did not begin when the scripture had been fi finished? The interpretation of scripture goes all the way back to Nehemiah chapter 8 when they allowed the Jews to go back into the city and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And if you read Nehemiah, you'll see they found scrolls. And they began to open. Now, they had been in captivity for several years, and they came back in Nehemiah. They come back, and they find these scrolls, and they begin to open them and read them. And from that point forward, they were interpreting the scrolls in a literal way and in a literal fashion. In fact, all of the Old Testament interpretation was based off of a literal meaning. In other words, part of the reason why the Jews of the Gospels didn't receive Christ as the Messiah is they were taking the promises of the Old Testament literally, which is that you would have a kingdom that will last forever. Okay, they were looking at things in a literal measure and not in an allegorical we even get to the time of Christ. The disciples themselves in Acts chapter 1 are still talking to Jesus about the kingdom that's coming. Are you going to set up your kingdom now? In other words, they're literally looking forward to some promises that we're going to talk about in a few minutes that had not yet been established, but they were interpreting all of this stuff, all of the Old Testament, if you will, in a literal fashion. Um, the apostles taught the Old Testament was a literal thing, but they were beginning to see uh, what we will describe in a few weeks probably as the mystery, the unseen part of prophecy that the disciples and the apostles began to recognize, and we'll address that in, in future weeks, but they were interpreting literally. So it was not until, well, let me go a little bit further in this literal interpretation Justin Martyr was alive, I believe it's 100 to 165 is when he was alive, and he was predominantly a literal, historical, grammatical uh, interpreter. The church in Antioch, where they were first called Christians, a man by the name of Theodore of Mopsuestia. Uh, that's the only time I'm going to say it. They were literal interpreters. Okay, so the first hundred year in, in the hundreds. Now, for you to know that, Jesus died around 33, 34. John, the last disciple who wrote the book of Revelations, 
died in um, 100, okay? So this is shortly after their death, the apostles' death, and, and, and about 100 years after Jesus walked the earth, they were still interpreting in a literal way. But then came somebody around 185. His name was Origen. How many have ever heard of Origen? Origen messed things up. And the reason why he messed things up and began to introduce this allegorical method of understanding and interpreting was because he was influenced by a school in Egypt by the name of the School of Alexandria. Okay? And the School of Alexandria had people that were influenced by Clement of Alexandria, Plato. How many have ever heard of Plato? You've probably heard that in English class and in school, Aristotle, how many have ever heard of Aristotle? Okay, well, these were Greek philosophers. These were people that thought outside the box, and they uh, and, and the the origin and the people of the school of Alexandria allowed that thinking to seep into their understanding, and so they began to try to reconcile the word of God with Greek philosophy. Okay. Aristobulus, who was in the second century, I think he was like 190, uh, he said this, Greek philosophy was borrowed from the Old Testament. So you can start seeing the switch and the muddiness starting to happen. So then the, I mentioned the school of Alexandria, and uh, uh, they were what you would call today probably an Eastern Orthodox church. Okay, and they wanted, the goal of the school of Alexandria was to unite philosophy of the Greeks with revelation of the scripture and make them fit and blend together. And so then Clement, who was alive from 150 to 210, now remember 150 A.D. is over 100 years after Christ. Okay, this is the reason why we like to tell you that we are an apostolic Pentecostal church because we want to go all the way back to when Jesus was there and interpret and do things the way they did, bypassing all of the philosophy that God mixed into it. Okay? So Clement of Alexandria, Origen I've mentioned, they furnished the direct antithesis, if you will, that people like Tertullian and Irenaeus began to absorb around 150 to 180. And Clement and Origen believed this. They believed in the divine origin of Greek philosophy. Okay? That's what they believed. Now, I know some of this is just kind of, ugh, but it'll make sense when we start talking about the reason why there's so many weird do doctrines of eschatology. There's weird doctrines of a bunch of stuff because of this, but we're obviously talking about eschatology. Uh, so they were openly proponents of a principle that Scripture... The Bible could only be interpreted allegorically. Almost 200 years after Christ, up until then, they were interpreting Scripture literally. Then along comes Augustine in 300s, and he lays down some rules and totally flips the religious world on its ear. And Augustine said this. How many have ever just heard the term St. Augustine? That's who I'm talking about. He wasn't, in my opinion, much of a saint. Uh, but he laid down the rule that the Bible must, this is in your notes, he must 
be interpreted, now listen to this, with reference to church orthodoxy. Okay? Again, this is 300s. And Augustine says, it must be interpreted with reference to church orthodoxy and that no scriptural expression can be out of accordance with any other. In other words, the scripture was to be read to agree with the Greek orth- or the church orthodoxy. In other words, the men that sat around a table that decided how the church was going to run and operate and believe, that was going to be more important than the scripture, and the scripture needed to line up based on what they said. Can you see how twisted that is? Can I tell you that's part of the reason or part of the areas where infant baptism came in? There was no infant baptism before this. Okay, that was a man's idea. And then they tried to twist Scripture into man's idea. And it's now a main doctrine of, of several different orthodoxies. Okay, number two there, the Augustine, the method had degenerated into an artistic method um, supporting the church. In other words, in the 300s, they declared that this, the Bible, was not going to support the kingdom, but it was designed to support and explain the church based off of what these men had decided. It's kind of scary, isn't it? And so this allegorical look into Scripture was born not to understand Scripture, but to unite it to Greek philosophy. Did you know that the confession of the sinner to a priest was not didn't even come into existence until the 6th century? 6th century, that's 500s, isn't it? That's a long time after the church was established. And they take the scripture and they read into it based off of what man and the church orthodoxy. So now in your notes you have the dark ages. This would be shortly after the 300s up until about 1350, 1380, something like that when Wycliffe comes on the scene. But in the dark ages, ecclesiasticism, that's a fancy word for church orthodoxy. That's how the church, the ecclesiastical way that the church operated was, was the establishment which depended for its position on allegory. And it overrode the church of Antioch. Remember, Antioch was the church, in, according to the book of Acts, where they were first called Christians. And they were literal interpreters. This was overrun by this new allegorical method in the Dark Ages. And so the literal method of interpretation was deemed heresy. Literally heresy by those that taught allegory. And so there were people like... Uh, well, this was a little bit later, but people like Michael Servetus, uh, Sibelius, there's a couple others that were actually burned at the stake because they couldn't agree with church orthodoxy because they were reading a literal interpretation of Scripture, and that had become heretical. Okay? Um, so then you get to the Reformation. I said this is a, around 1350 or so. Um, and the whole Reformation period is said to have been activated not because of anything other than taking us back to the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, these reformers weren't perfect, but they were bucking the system. I mean, it's a big deal in the 
religious world where uh, Martin Luther tacked the 95 statements on the door. That was a huge deal. Okay, he was doing that because some of them were realizing that the church had overstated, the, the church orthodoxy had overstated their meaning, and they were now twisting Scripture and putting on people what Bible never put upon people. Okay? So the whole Reformation was about changing back from an allegorical to a literal method of interpretation. In 1469 to 1536, a man by the name of Erasmus he, he emphasized the study of the original text. So it started out with this literal. The Bible says what it means, and it's going to stay what it means. And then philosophy got all mixed in by man to where now the Bible, and because it was left up to the interpretation of church orthodoxy, the Bible was taken out of the common person's hands to understand what God was trying to speak to people, and it came only from the religious elite. Okay? And now the reformers are changing that. And Erasmus says it this way. He emphasized the study of the original text, and he quoted this according to Farrar. He said, may be regarded as the chief founder of modern textual and biblical criticism. There was a switch that took place in the 1300s and 1400s, a, a slight adjustment, if you will. Wycliffe, some of you have probably heard his name, he said the whole error in knowledge of the Scripture and the source of its debasement and falsification by incompetent persons was the ignorance of grammar and logic. He was basically saying, because you weren't going to interpret the Bible, you were going to listen to these morons. Now, that's not my term. Now, he used ignorant and incompetent. I just used moron. Okay? Tyndale, who died in 1536, he said this, God is a spirit and all his words are spiritual and his literal sense is spiritual. And the literal sense is the root and ground of all and the anchor that never fails, whereunto if you cleave to it, you can never err or go out of the way. If you can ever get to where you can understand this literally and what it's really saying, you'll never wander from it. But if you do it allegorically, hey, it may be a brand new doctrine tomorrow. Okay, Luther, he died in 1546, and he said every word should be allowed to stand in its natural meaning, and that should not be abandoned unless the word forces us to it. So what ended up happening, Kelvin was another one. He said it's natural. Uh, the obvious meaning of the Scripture is natural. And so what was happening in the Re Reformation is men were starting to stand up and say, okay, church, you've done messed us up, okay? And it's the reason why we have a bunch of different denominations in the world. Can I just say that and be very plain about it? Because every denomination in the world started because of a disagreement with somebody. Does that, do you understand what I'm saying? So Lutherans disagreed. They agreed with Martin Luther, but they disagreed with the Catholic Church that was established then, and so they started a different. Then there was Wesley came along, and then there was all, all these different kind of groups that came along, and they were built based on the disagreement of an interpretation of Scripture or, or some kind of a doctrine that they didn't agree with, and that's where we get all of the denominationalism from today. But the literal sense of Scripture alone is the whole essence of Christianity. And so in the last part of your notes there, with this, in this period there wasn't a full growth of exegesis, ex 
E-G-E-S-I-S. It's the opposite term is eisegesis. If you hear somebody talking about eisegesis, that means you're interpreting it on your own. You're reading into whatever you want to read into. Exegesis is pulling out literally the meaning of the Scripture. I am an exegetical preacher. I dig into the Scripture and I pull out to the very core, if I can, the true meaning of what the Scripture says. And this history of interpretation uh, reveals an adherence to creeds, to church dogma, to church orthodoxy, and there's little progress even in the Reformation area of coming out of that. And so we get to the post-Reformation era, and uh, the Bible must be, this is in your notes here, the Bible must be rigidly explained according to its own language. And it must neither be bribed, external authority of the church, or by their own feeling. Okay? So what ended up happening in this period is, even to this day, if you talk to some quote-unquote theologians, now theology is the study of God. Theologians should be the study of godly things. But oftentimes, I just watched an interview with somebody, and they were asking him questions about some doctrinal things in the Scripture. And do you know that this preacher did not use the Bible one time to explain himself? He only used the church creeds, church orthodoxy, church historians, uh, and and tried to explain. And and I'm sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but what does the Bible say? You know? But that's, that's what this world ended up. And so in summary here, All of it started with literal. It digressed to allegorical. Then in the Reformation, post-Reformation, there was a reestablishment. Does anybody, has anybody ever heard of the Spanish Inquisition? Okay. Do you want to know why that was such a big deal? It was the church seeking out heretics because the heretics were interpreting scriptural literally and they were coming to a disagreement with the church orthodoxy. That's what the Spanish Inquisition was all about. And so they went around literally killing and putting on trial and putting in prison people that were literally interpreting Scripture, but it was, and when they interpreted it literally, it didn't line up with church orthodoxy, and it was more important that the church held its power and its authority than to change the direction or the dogma or the orthodoxy of the church that would buy into what the Scripture said. That's the reason why you can even read some old encyclopedias that will tell you the way things were done, and they'll say, but we switched it here. Okay? The, the, the best example that I can come up with is if you read the Catholic Encyclopedia, the Catholic Encyclopedia will tell you that the first church baptized by immersion in Jesus' name, and they didn't start, and they weren't sprinkled. It was done by immersion. And that changed, though, in about 345 to 450. I'm like, okay, so which one are you going to go by? What the church said in 300 or what was happening when the church was born? Well, they chose to follow the creeds and the church orthodoxy. And now that brings us all the way back to where we're at. So in our interpretation, this, and I've used this, so I'm going to go really fast here. And uh, 
it's how to use the literal method. The first one is the word. What does the word say? Not what does the word say in English, because English is a very poor language. What does it say in the way that it was written originally? Was it in the Hebrew, the Aramaic, or the, uh, or the uh, Greek? And what did it mean in that day? For instance, in the Bible, when you read the word conversation, that's not talking to one another. That's the Greek word for behavior. Okay? So when you read in the King James Version, now some of the newer versions will use the word behavior, um, but the English word was conversation, but the biblical word is behavior. Okay, so you have to find out what the word is. Number two, the verse and or chapter. What is this particular passage talking about? What's the meaning? How does the meaning of this particular word fit into what the subject of the passage is about? Then letter C is the book. Who's writing the book and who's it written to? How many have ever heard this statement? And, and as I'm doing this, I hope I don't mess anybody's theology up, but you'll just have to talk to me later. How many have ever heard of the Romans' road to salvation? There's a few of you. The Romans, can I tell you that's a fallacy? And the reason is, is because they took the words of Scripture and didn't realize what the book was written. You want to know who the book of Romans was written to? Saints. It says to the, the saints that are in Rome. And so what the book of Romans is telling us is not how to get saved. It's explaining what happened when we were saved. Okay, that makes a huge difference on how you read the book of Romans. Okay? So you have to identify the book. It's the same with some of the other letters of the New Testament. Okay? Some churches have made doctrines out of the book of Corinthians. That was written to a particular church for a particular purpose. Okay? Does that make sense? Then it, the Bible, the overall scope of the Bible. What's the Bible trying to do and how does the word, verse, chapter, book all fit into the overall sense of the entire Bible? And then the last one there is manners and customs. Okay? You need to do some study about what was actually going on in the world then. Okay? So prophecy, the characteristic of prophecy or the interpretation, the characteristic is in your notes there. And this, you're going to have to let this part reverberate in you. Because as we get into the actual prophecies of the end times, you're going to have to understand these principles of prophetic interpretation. Some of the characteristics. For instance, the future was made to appear to them, the prophets I'm talking about, as either immediately present, already completed, or in progress. Okay? So in other words... I mentioned the mystery a little while ago, and I'm not going to break it down yet because that's going to be a whole section, and I can't get off the rails yet. We're the first night. But the Old Testament prophets did not see the church. They prophesied about it some, okay, but they didn't see it. So when they're preaching about the king or the Messiah coming, they miss the church age. They're looking all the way yet to when Jesus comes riding on a white horse, and we'll be talking about that when we get to the end of the tribulation in a few weeks, okay? 
they're look, so when you read some prophecies in the Old Testament, it, it's totally missing from Bethlehem up until today. It doesn't see it. Okay, does that make sense? And so when they write it, we have to understand that when we're reading it, we have to balance it with other stuff in Scripture to, to make it, for instance, has Jesus come as King of Kings yet? No. He came as a suffering servant. There's still yet to come a day, I believe, and I'm going to prove it by the end of this, I was going to say six weeks, it may be more than that, by the end of this series, that Jesus is not yet come as King of Kings, but he will come at the end of the tribulation riding on a white horse and the, uh, and the heavenly host with him. Okay? So that hasn't happened yet. But yet we say, you're the king of kings. And Do you see what I'm saying? We, they didn't see it. We've seen some of it. We understand that he is the king of kings in our heart and in our spirit, but he has not been crowned physically yet in this world. Okay? Um, A prophecy in the Old Testament may see things and speak it as one event, but there may be multiple fulfillments, okay? For instance, Jesus coming. Did you know that Jesus actually comes three times, but two times is the same event? Okay, he came the first time in Bethlehem, and then we say he's coming again, and we think rapture, right? Okay, well, that's only part of it, and he's really not coming. He's just going to stay up there, and he's going to call us home. His second coming is actually second advent, which is at the end of the tribulation. We'll get into all of that. But what I'm, what I'm trying to point out here is when we're interpreting some prophecies, there could be multiple, from, multiple fulfillments of one prophecy. Okay? Sometimes in pro- prophetical understanding, single predictions may even seem to contradict each other. Okay, Micah contradicts Isaiah. Isaiah reveals Christ as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, exalted. Micah, a baby born in Bethlehem. Okay, almost sounds contradictory. And the other reason why, just on a side note that just hit me, why I know that they were interpreting Scripture literally, what did the wise men say when they came to Bethlehem? I seek what? the Savior, yeah. What else did he say? Oh, my goodness. The star led them. Who said that? The star led them to do what? Somebody said it. Worship the king. I've come to see the king of the Jews. And Herod freaked out. Okay? Because the wise men didn't realize that they were looking for a baby until they found him. Okay, so it can have two different seemingly contradictory statements. Um, as far as the form is concerned of prophecy, it's on the plane of the beholder. In other words, a prophet speaks of future glory in terms of his own society and experience. Okay, for an example, and I'm just going to use a crude one, and please don't read into it. Don't walk away saying that this is the answer. I'm giving you an example. Everybody say it's an example. But if an Old Testament prophet saw and prophesied, I see a swarm of bees coming and attacking the land. 
Now, that could be literal bees, but that could be a bunch of helicopters. And they don't know what a helicopter is back then. Okay? So they use words out of their own society, out of their own understanding, out of their own experience to describe what's getting ready to happen. Okay? And so they say bees are going to swarm. Now that may happen, and, and, and there's no scripture reference to bees swarming. Don't look it up. I'm making it up. It's the example. But that could be a whole bunch of Blackhawks. You know, I, we don't know exactly. It's the reason why it's hard to pinpoint unless Scripture identifies what things are going to be. It's hard to identify what things are going to be. Okay? The next one here is a prophet sees things together that are widely separated. And I, I call it this. It's the mountain peak mentality. Okay? So if you go stand at the foot of a mountain in a, and you start declaring what thus is on the other side of the mountain, all you see is the mountain. Okay? You don't see the next valley where the next mountain peak is. Okay? And so prophets didn't always see past the first mountain peak or the second mountain peak and get down to the third mountain peak where the prophecy is fulfilled. That's why there are partial fulfillments of prophecies that took place since, and, and we'll get into those. I'm just, just remember some of these principles when we get there. Okay, number two in your notes, the time element in prophecy. Okay, the prophet often speaks of things that belong to the future as if present to their view. Think of, we quote it every Christmas, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and thou shalt call his name. Okay? He, he's, he, he's got something in the immediate, and he's speaking it as its future, because it is future. Uh, the flip side of that is Isaiah 53. The prophet can speak of things in the future as already happening. He was wounded for our transgressions. Okay? It's obvious that that chapter of Isaiah is talking about Jesus, but it's hundreds of years before Jesus. But Isaiah is speaking as it's already. Why can they do that? Why can prophecy do that? I'll tell you why prophecy can do that, because the Holy Ghost moved on Old Testament and on, on the authors of the Bible, and he's not restricted to time. So there's nothing future to God. He's already there. Does that make sense? He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He's not prohibited by time. We are, but he's not. And so as he moves through a prophet to speak, he could be speaking in advance and making it sound like it's already happened because in God's eyes it's already happened. So let me give you the crude picture. God is ministering through Isaiah, and he says, Isaiah, he's already died. He paid the price. He suffered, Isaiah. He was wounded for our transgressions. Why? Because in God's mind it's already happened. How do I know that? Because the Bible says that he was slain from the foundation of the world. In God's mind, it had already taken place. Okay? Number three, the law of double reference. Two events widely separated as to the time may be brought together in the scope of one prophecy. 
And it was the purpose of God to give the near and the far view so that the fulfillment of the first will reassure us of the second. Okay? So when he was prophesied to come in Bethlehem, because he came and fulfilled that, I can be assured he's coming again. If he did it once, he's promised he'll do it again. He came to earth. The purpose of the whole concept of everything is that he would have a relationship with his people that he created and put on earth, and he started it in Bethlehem. I can be assured he's going to finish it in glory. Okay, that's double reference. And then within prophecy, the methods of prophetic revelation, we're going to talk a lot about these types and symbols, et cetera, et cetera, all different kinds of parables, dreams, etc. Get to the last page of that first section, uh, number, I think it's number five in my notes, but uh, the rules for the interpretation of prophecy. Okay, and this, if you can turn down this page, because this is going to, res- this is our measuring stick for the rest of the series. Okay, this is the rules we're going to go by. Um. We're going to determine the historical background of the prophet and the prophecy. So, for instance, we need to know that Isaiah was a palace prophet. He was royalty. Okay? So he didn't understand what it was to be a beggar. Okay? Uh, Hosea was married to somebody that was given to prostitution, and God had to bring her back all the time. Okay, well, Micah didn't understand that, so he didn't write from that viewpoint. Does that make sense? Uh, We're going to determine the full meaning and the significance of all the proper names, events, and geographical locations. Uh, We're going to interpret literally. I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but here's two reasons why um, people don't interpret literally. Number one, they want to avoid the obvious interpretation of the passage. They don't want to look in the mirror, okay? You know, hatred or anger or not having the spirit or the fruit of patience, we read that, we say, well, I don't want to be patient today, God. So that must mean something different. Right? The second reason why people don't is because if you read Scripture for Scripture, to bring Scripture into harmony with a predetermined system of doctrine instead of bringing doctrine into harmony with Scripture, that was where I was at. For a long time, I read the Bible to prove my point of view. Don't look at me with these faces because I know you've done the same. In denominationalism, that's what you do. You're trying to prove the statement of faith to whatever denomination that you're in, whatever background you were in and raised in. You're trying to prove. And so, but what ends up happening is you twist what the Word of God is saying to fit a preconceived idea of what you think it's supposed to say. Okay? One of the most freeing things for me was about 15 years ago, I just started reading the Bible for what the Bible says, not caring what anybody else said. What does your word say, Lord? And I will tell you, I had to shift 
a lot, I shouldn't say a lot, but some doctrinal ideas that I was raised under. And on the flip side, it confirmed some things to a greater extent. But it, it confirmed not because such and so told me, not because my teacher told me, not because some religious doc Jesus told me through his word. And I fixed it, it. Will he ever do it again? I hope so. I hope I never get to be the person that's so locked into what I think is right. But if we can prove it in Scripture, let's prove it in Scripture. What I don't like doing and won't do is get into debates with somebody that's just trying to prove their point and not willing to open the Scripture themselves. Then I'm just wasting my breath. Um, part of the literal interpretation is man's viewpoint. So we're going to divide the prophecy into that which has been fulfilled, that which has not been fulfilled yet. Okay, there's some prophecies that have been, there's some that haven't. But then more importantly, we're going to look at God's viewpoint. In, in, in a unit, indivisible on the time basis, these prophecies have been fulfilled, are designed to form a pattern for our understanding. We're going to interpret according to the harmony of prophecy. Each individual prophecy must be balanced or in harmony with the whole prophetic program. And you're going to hear a couple of different, I'm going to use the word program a lot in the next few weeks. There's a program for Israel. There's a program for the church. There's a program for Gentiles. There's a program for angels. Okay? And I'm going to use that word program because if you recognize the word program that God has, when you recognize what you're reading, there's things that we use outside of the program. There's, and let me just give you an example. There, I've brought it up a couple of times um, in the last couple of weeks. The scripture that says, they shall overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. Okay? I've preached that. I've used that before. Gets me excited. It gives me boldness to testify. But the meaning of that has been taken out of the program because that scripture is a fulfillment for tribulation saints and not for us. I overcome by Christ. Romans 8. I am made more than an overcomer. Okay? So I'm either more of an overcomer by Christ or by the word of my test. But here's the difference. The tribulation, Christ won't be in the world. His blood has already been shed. So by the blood of shed, shedding of the blood of the lamb, that's still appropriate in the tribulation. But the only way that they're going to be released from the things of this world is they're going to have to testify to who Jesus is. Now, that's how they get their freedom. They are released or they are overcomers by the word of their testimony. They are going to speak it. Now, it's going to cost them their life probably because they're going to be a lot of martyrs in the tribulation. But that's how they are set free. It's by the word of their testimony. You see what I'm saying? We, we take one scripture out of a program for somebody else, and we try to use it and make it sound nice and good. Let me give you another example. Jeremiah 29, 11. Somebody quote it. And we get excited. Ah, he's got plans for me. Did you know that that has nothing to do with me? That's written to the country or the nation of Israel. 
Now, we can take the principle of it. So don't misunderstand me. Don't walk away from here and say, well, God doesn't have any plans for me. No, 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 no. As a people, his plans are different. It's a different program. Can I tell you what people misunderstand? They take the second phrase of that, to prosper. The plan is to make you prosper. That's not part of it. In fact, Jesus told us the opposite of that. He said, in this world you will have tribulation. He said, they're going to hate you. (laughs) Not because of who you are, because they hate me. Okay, that sounds a little different than God prospering us. But if we read, if we spiritualize that scripture, yeah, I'm prosperous even though all of my earthly mess is going on. Okay, I can buy into that. Yeah, he's prospered me. Hasn't made me rich physically, but spiritually, yeah, okay. But the primary meaning of that scripture is written to the nation of Israel. There's coming a day it's not happened yet. God says, I've got plans There's coming a day at the onset of the millennium where Israel's going to prosper more than anybody else. Okay? So do you see what I'm saying? There's going to be scriptures that are for different programs and different people. And we have to understand where we're taking a principle and applying the principle to us or we're taking the literal meaning from it. And then we always have to remember this. All end-time prophecy is Christological. What I mean by that is Jesus is always the center. I mean, the book of Revelation says the revelation of Jesus Christ. The end time is to reveal Christ to the world. Okay? Now, if we're smart and we catch who Jesus is now, we'll miss out on the hard part. But if we don't catch it now, there's going to come a day where you're not really going to want to be around, but it's still about the revealing of Jesus. It's just in a different format. Okay? All right, I've got seven minutes. I want to go to one more page because this, this next page will set up next week. Next Thursday, we're going to start talking about the covenants. And uh, I want to encourage you unless you want to unlearn what you learned this week, don't go ahead. Okay? If you're like me, I know you're going to want to look at those notes. It's one, as a teacher, you always wonder, how much should I pass out? How much should I? I didn't want to get ahead of myself and not have the handouts for you. But if, if it's going to confuse you some. So just wait, and then we'll, we'll read it together. How many have ever heard of dispensationalism? Okay, yes, several of you have. Okay, I am not a strict dispensationalist, okay? But I do believe in dispensations. Um, A strict dispensationalist will tell you that grace was only for this time period. However, I find that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. I found David finding grace from the Lord, okay? So there's a blending and there's... But the primary principle of each dispensation in history is correct. And it helps us understand a little bit of how we are going to be able to interpret what's getting ready to happen in the world. So 
there are seven historical dispensations that we find in Scripture. And uh, as often as I can, I'm going to give you a chart like this because um, I like charts. They make sense to me. The first historical dispensation is what is known as the dispensation of innocence. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's, uh, in fact, when they committed sin, their innocence was broken, and they had to have a conversation with the Lord. Okay? And so that first dispensation of innocence uh, only involved Adam and Eve, really, and their judgment because they broke from God was that they were driven from the garden. They were driven from the garden. And that ushered in the second dispensation, which was the dispensation of conscience. Okay? Cain and Abel, Noah are the key components to this uh, time period. And uh, because the conscience of the people was radically seared, somewhere along the line there, they became so wicked that God got so mad that he judged them by sending the flood. Okay, that ended the conscience dispensation. Then if we continue to read after the flood, we would call it the human government dispensation. Seth and Nimrod. Seth was the righteous line, and Nimrod was uh, the one that decided he was going to raise the Tower of Babel. And Nimrod was a wicked, wicked man. And so... The judgment of God comes down at the Tower of Babel in the confusion of tongues or languages, okay? That ushers us into a new dispensation of promise. Those are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. God lays down some major promises with Abraham that we're going to be talking about starting next week and, and some promises that are laid down and even some prophetic things that are established at the, the dispensation of promise that hasn't fully happened yet. But we're going to reveal those next week. That's why underneath there it's called the time of the prophets. Okay, we know that Jacob comes to Egypt to, to flee the famine, and he, leave, he dies, he leaves, he dies, and another pharaoh rises that doesn't know Joseph, and they end up in bondage, and that's the judgment of promise. And so they come out of bondage led by Moses, and they end up at Mount Sinai, and it kicks off a dispensation of the law, the Mosaic law, the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt, thou shalt nots. And from that point forward, all the way to Calvary. Now notice that. It's to Calvary. It's not Bethlehem. So when we read the Old Testament ending at Malachi and the New Testament starting at Matthew, right? But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, are Old Testament books. They're books within the confines of the dispensation of the law. They would have been better attached to Malachi and the New Testament starting with the book of Acts. Okay, time-wise, chronology-wise. Okay, the judgment for the law was Jesus on the cross, Calvary. I came to fulfill the law, okay? That, that's what he did on Calvary. He fulfilled the law. And in Acts chapter 2, 
starts what we call the church age or the grace age or this present age. We're going to use that term, this present age, here in a couple of weeks when we're talking about this. That goes from when Acts chapter 2 and the judgment, if you will, or the closing of the grace age will be at the rapture of the church. And then it, and, and that's the time of the mystery. That's what prophecy doesn't visualize. Okay? Now, some of the apostles, especially Paul, Paul started to see what the church age was all about. Okay? And then the rapture will take place, and that will kick off the kingdom age. And the kingdom age will be the tribulation, the millennial, the white throne judgment will be the ultimate judge and the ultimate uh, judgment. That's the time when everything is going to get fulfilled and then eternity after that. Notice on the bottom, and then I'm done, the time of fulfillment, okay? That's where people misunderstand what's going on today. The time of fulfillment has not started yet. The time of the prophets have been released and revealed. We are in the mystery season The fulfillment season hasn't started yet. How many have heard this phraseology? The book of Revelation is playing out right before our eyes. No, it's not. The first three chapters are. That's it. Chapter four ain't happened yet. That's what's exciting. Is Revelation hasn't even started Now, we see some things that are precursors to what could happen after uh, Revelation 4, which is the rapture. Just give you the insight for that short terminology. Listen, don't worry about what's going on in the world. If you are hand-in-hand with Jesus, yeah, you may see some of the precursors of what's happening. Okay? It's the reason why I will never get freaked out by the mark of the beast. Because I ain't going to be here. You'll never convince me that there's going to be a mark of the beast before the rapture. Because hand in hand with the mark of the beast is the worship of the Antichrist. And the Antichrist doesn't come into existence, well, doesn't come into power until the church is gone. So all this end time stuff that's floating around, don't panic about it. Don't have fear about it. You're part of the church. And so when we can understand, in that chart, when we can understand what the time of the prophets said and what's going to happen at the fulfillment, and we're going to tie those two together, we're going to bounce back all over the Old Testament. Now, you're going to see a laundry list of scriptures. Uh, It was the hardest part of typing. Because you put the parentheses and the semicolons and the colons and the commas and all the numbers. drove me nuts. But I left all the scriptures. Now, we're not going to read them all or we'll be here for three years. But you'll have them all in your notes. And you can refer back to them. Praise God. Does anybody have any questions on the first night? We are. Yes, ma'am. Yes. It's the T's. Here, here's what's, let me just give you the layout just so that you're aware of it. I do very strongly want to be done at 730. 
I'm going to be about two minutes late today so that Catalyst is still going to meet. Now they're going to go and do their thing now after we're done. Um, but I also know that it's school is starting up and the kids and some of us adults need to get to bed. And so um, I, I do want to do my best to be done at 7.30. So I'm going to start right at 6.30. So, you know, don't, if you come in at 6.40, you've missed 10 minutes, okay? And starting next week, I'm getting right into some stuff that you don't want, you want to try to be here to the best of your ability on time because I'm going to start right into the Abrahamic covenant and the covenants that are in the Old Testament that have not been fulfilled yet. And uh, that will then kick off all of the official end time stuff now that we have the foundation that isn't the pretty part of the building, but it holds it all up. Let's stand, would you? Jesus, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us.